If you would please be seated and once again open in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9. And as you turn there, this morning I'm going to give you the big, all-important, overarching point of this chapter up front. Now, normally I wouldn't do this. Normally, I would make you go with me around the long way, around the barn. Uh, normally, I would make you wait for such a thing uh, to get to the main point, but not today. Not today, not this morning. Why? It's like this. Just in case we get lost, just in case we get separated at any point, I want you to be able to remember the main thing, just in case you get distracted and you start thinking and daydreaming about the Roman Empire. I want you to be able to recall what this chapter is all about, just in case I fail to do my job and I communicate in a confusing or cloudy way. I want you to stay on track. I want you to never forget what God reveals and shows us here. So think of it like this. And I know this may feel like the long way around the barn, but trust me, this is a shortcut. Think of it like this. While Jesus was on earth, He had a lot to say about the vileness of Satan. While Jesus was on earth, he had a lot to say about the subtle, ugly deception of Satan. And Jesus had a lot to say about his victory over the evil one. For example, when Jesus was talking with the religious leaders who had rejected him and who were trying to kill him, Jesus said this to them in John 8, 44. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar And the father of lies. So who is Satan? What is Satan? He is a murderer. He will gladly end your life. There is no truth in him. He is a liar and he loves to multiply his lies. He loves to propagate and to prop up his lies. He is like a father of lies, says Jesus, meaning his lies are like his children. And they and they go out to do his bidding and they go out to accomplish the ugly, destructive deception that he wants to accomplish. Jesus also said this in John chapter 10, verse 9. He said, I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, in context, Those who are thieves here in John 10 are those who lead others astray. Those who reject Christ, the true door, those who are in line and in league with Satan. What do they do? What are they like? They are like the evil one, meaning, according to Jesus, they come to steal. They come to kill. They come to destroy, period. That's it. That's what they do. That's what they accomplish. Now, the question is this. Why is Jesus telling all this? Why why does Jesus tell us this? Is Jesus warning us? Is Jesus preparing us for the fact that, look, 
this battle might not go our way. (laughs) Satan might win. Jesus might be defeated. Is that the point that Jesus is making? Not hardly. Not hardly. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples after he sent them out two by two in power to proclaim the gospel? Do you remember what Jesus said to them after they came back from that short-term missions trip and they were so excited and they were so energized because, man, even the demons were subject to them. This is what Jesus said to them in Luke ten eighteen. He said, quote, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, Jesus says, you think you've seen some things? You, you think you have seen the power of God and, and the victory of God over evil? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I know that he is a defeated enemy. I know his future. I know my victory over him. And then Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, quote, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. That's interesting imagery. Tuck that away. Remember that. Serpents and scorpions. And then Jesus says this, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And brothers and sisters, that's it. We have finally arrived at the main point of Revelation chapter 9. That's what we cannot afford to forget as we study this chapter. Please note it on your outline. Here is the big picture of Revelation 9. Satan is not your friend. Here in this chapter, he is unmasked. We see that he desires death, deception, destruction. Jesus, on the other hand, he is the Savior, the door, the Good Shepherd who gives life-changing grace abundant joy, and eternal life. And so when and if you are tempted to get lost in the weeds of this lengthy, graphic chapter, come back to this reality. If you get distracted by some mysterious detail that we look at here, resurface to this truth and breathe in the air of this truth. When you need to remember, and you do, I do, when you need to remember the truth about sin and temptation, the truth about the goodness and the glory of Christ, come back to this reality. Now, one last thing before we jump into chapter 9. I know it's been like two full weeks since we've been in this book. And that feels like an eternity. It feels like forever since we've been in, in the book of Revelation. So let me give you just a quick review of where we've been since chapter 4. And then we will go running into chapter 9. Okay, so here's the review. In chapters 4 and 5, remember that John is caught up to see the glory and the worship of heaven. In chapter 5, John sees who? 
John sees Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain. He sees Jesus come and take the scroll from the Father's hand, the scroll that has seven seals, the scroll that outlines and activates God's plan, God's plan of making all things new, God's plan of justice, God's plan of glorifying Jesus as the heir of all things. In chapter 6, Jesus begins to open the scroll and he opens the first six seals where we see that God allows people to begin to experience the consequences of sin. In this time of tribulation, we see war, death, famine, destruction, and we see people continuing to harden their hearts against God. Then in chapter 7, instead of Jesus opening the seventh seal, we see a heavenly interlude. We see a pause. We see a timeout. We see a break in the action where we see both the power and the sovereignty of God as well as the safety and the security of God's people. These interludes, and remember there's three of them in this a book of Revelation. There's three of them, and they remind us that God's people will not be swallowed up in wrath but that they are truly secure in him. And then in chapter 8, we finally come to the seventh seal. And when we come to the seventh seal, as, 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 as you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, there is silence in heaven for 30 minutes. There's silence in heaven for about a half an hour because contained within the seventh seal are seven trumpet judgments and then seven bowl judgments that come out of that. And the seven trumpet judgments are meant to wake people up, to alert them to the reality of God's justice, to call them to repentance. And then the seven bowl judgments will finally bring God's plan of judgment to completion. And so several weeks ago in chapter 8, we heard the first four trumpet judgments where God strikes the earth. God removes many of the blessings that mankind usually enjoys in, in creation. Those first four trumpet judgments deal with things like vegetation, the ocean, fresh water, celestial lights, the sun, the moon, the stars. But now in chapter nine, in chapter nine, in trumpets five and six, God allows something very different. God unleashes for a time, for a short time, God unleashes Satan and his demons to do what they want to do. And what do they want to do? What did we talk about earlier? They want to steal, kill, and destroy. And again, brothers and sisters, this is so important because we live in a day and age when this is how so many people think about Good and evil, angels and demons, God and Satan. This is it. This is, this is the world that we live in. When people, when people think about angels and demons and sin and temptation and God and Satan. And listen, I have nothing against Kronk. I have nothing against the Emperor's New Groove. Very, very funny movie. But this idea is so prevalent throughout our culture. It is pushed on us continually that Satan is fun. God is so boring. He's so boring. And, and the little devil angel that, that sits on your shoulder, he just wants you to have a good time. While the, while the little angel in, in white just wants to guilt you into doing, yes, the right thing, but the very boring thing. 
The thing, thing that's not going to make you happy. The thing that's actually going to make you miserable. We are told that the realm of darkness is where the fun really is. But I guess we should just be boring. I guess we should just do the right thing. I guess we should just do the boring, miserable thing that God wants. That kind of thinking could not be more wrong. That kind of thinking could not be more corrupt, could not be more opposite. And here, Revelation 9 exposes that. It unmasks Satan for the liar and for the murderer that he truly is. So, as we go throughout this chapter, don't forget the big picture. Satan is not your friend. He is unmasked here. We see he desires death, deception, destruction, while Jesus is the Savior, the door, the good shepherd who gives life-changing grace, abundant joy, and eternal life. If you're in Revelation 9, look at the first verse. It says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, Stop there for just a moment. Here we see this mysterious bottomless pit. Sometimes, in fact, your translation may translate it as the abyss. This is the place. This is the abode where various demons have been locked up. And the Bible talks about this abyss. The Bible talks about this pit several places. Like in Luke 8.31, where we see some demons actually beg Jesus not to send them there. Not to send them to this pit and to this abyss. We see this uh, this place talked about in 2 Peter 2.4, where certain demons are described as being committed or imprisoned to chains of gloomy darkness. It's talked about again in the book of Jude, where Jude says something very similar, that there are certain demons that have been, quote, kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So here we see a key, a key to that pit, a key to that abyss is given to some star that falls from heaven. Now read on in verse two. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months but not to kill them. On, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, so just in case you were wondering what this weird demon-like locust army looks like, John will tell you in appearance, this is what he sees in appearance, the locusts were like 
horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise, the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Now I know what you're thinking. Wow, glad I came to church today. Man, this is good Sunday school flannel graph material right here. No, I mean, this, this seems like the stuff of nightmares. This sounds like the stuff of horror movies that we see advertised everywhere. But believe it or not, what John sees here, what John records here, it is for our benefit. Can you dig it? It is for your good that John writes and records this here. And so as we look at this section of verses, there are predominantly three things that should come screaming at us from the text. And it's this. Number one, we need to see here sovereignty, restraining sovereignty. We also need to see, number two, we need to see demonic cruelty. It is throughout the passage and then... We need to see meaningful imagery. So please note it on your outline. First, number one, we see restraining sovereignty. We see that God limits. He limits what these demons can and cannot do. God's sovereignty is written all over these verses. Now, I'm going to give you five ways that we see God's sovereignty here in this text. And the first is this. In verse 1, where we see this star that is fallen from heaven, he has to be given the key to the bottomless pit. He is not sovereign. He does not have the key. He does not own this pit. He has to be given the key to this pit. By God is sovereign. This fallen star is not. You say, well, who is this fallen star? I tend to think that it is none other than Satan himself. And I think that for several reasons. First of all, in Isaiah 14, Isaiah describes Satan as a fallen star. He describes Satan as fallen from heaven. We read in Isaiah 14, 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of the dawn, how you are cut down to the ground. That seems to be the imagery that we see here. Earlier, we we considered Luke 10, 18, uh, where Jesus said that he saw Satan fall from heaven. And again, that seems to be the same picture here in Revelation 9. Later in the book of Revelation in chapter 20, we will see a direct connection between Satan and this bottomless pit as Satan himself is locked away for a period of time. So yes, Satan is a horrible, deadly enemy, but he is not sovereign. He is not sovereign. He is not in control. He does not possess all power and all wisdom. God does. God has to give him this key to this pit. Otherwise, he can do nothing. Next, the second clear indication of God's sovereignty is seen in verse 4. In how these locusts and these demons, they cannot 
harm anything that God doesn't want them to harm. <laughs> they, are, they, are, they are given very specific instructions. They are not allowed to harm the grass or the green plants or, or, or the trees. Harming creation is not a part of this trumpet judgment. It was a part of the first trumpet judgment, but it's not a part of this trumpet judgment. God restricts them. He restrains them. Next, number three, the third evidence of God's sovereignty seen at the end of verse 4, where these locusts are told that they can only harm, quote, those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Meaning, these demons have no power over the people of God. No power. These demons can do nothing to harm and to afflict the sealed, chosen, beloved people of God. Now, back in Revelation 7, we saw how God sealed 144,000 Israelites, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, and we noted how this sealing on the forehead, it speaks to identification, that these are the people of God. It speaks to authenticity, that they, that they truly are the people of God. It speaks to protection, that God is caring for them and watching over them. It speaks to belonging, that they belong to God. The point is God knows those who belong to him. And later, and we'll have to wait a few months to get there, but later towards the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 22, we see that in fact, all of God's children are protected and sealed, having his name placed upon them. So this unique judgment described here, it is not intended to afflict the people of God. No, it is intended to demonstrate, listen, the horrible consequences of rejecting God. The horrible consequences of believing the lie of Satan who promises joy but delivers only pain. Next, the fourth evidence of God's sovereignty is seen in the fact that this judgment will last for exactly five months. God does not allow this demonic plague to go on indefinitely afflicting people. No, God puts a limit on it. God says, you have five months, not a day longer. God is sovereign over the beginning. God is sovereign over the ending of this unique judgment. And lastly, the fifth evidence of God's sovereignty here can be seen in the fact that this judgment does not lead to death. It does not result in death, but only in pain. In pain, God is sovereign over life and death. And God does not allow these demons here to kill, but only to harm. Now, the text says that people will want to die, that people will even seek death because of the pain that they are experiencing. But God will not allow it in this instance. Now, we're not told exactly how God will do this, but we are clearly told in verse six that he will not allow people to die from this particular judgment. Death is not an option because God says so. Here we see once again, God is patient. God is giving yet more time. God is allowing people to see the effects and the consequences of sin. God is allowing people to see the foolishness of their rebellion and to turn to Christ and to, for, to find life and to find forgiveness in Him. And so, when you read this chapter, when you read Revelation 9, if you see nothing else, see the sovereignty of God. 
see the restraining work of God who warns, who allows consequences, and who gives time for people to repent. Next, we also see here, please note it on your outline, number two, we see demonic cruelty. This demonic plague moves out to unleash their hatred on image bearers, on those who are made in the image of God. Now, people, people may be surprised to read this. People, people may be so surprised when they see this because they think, I thought Satan was my friend. I thought Satan just wanted us all to have a good time. Again, he's that funny little red demon sitting on my shoulder, just encouraging me to do whatever I want. I thought Satan was pro-joy. I thought Satan wanted everybody to just live happily ever after. You thought wrong. You thought wrong. When, when God gives Satan this key to the bottomless pit, he doesn't unleash a good time. He doesn't bring forth an army of party planners. He doesn't uh, uh, bring forth joy and contentment. He brings misery and pain. It's almost as if He's a liar and a murderer. It's almost as if he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. It's almost as if he hates those who are made in the image of God. Exactly. Which is why the king over this army is named, you probably noticed it in verse 11, the king over this army is named in Hebrew. His name is Abaddon. In Greek, he is called Apollyon. These names mean destruction, and destroyer. Destruction and destroyer. That's it. That's what these demons desire and intend to do. They are always working and planning for death. Think about that. Think about that the next time that sin and temptation comes to you and it looks so sweet. It looks so alluring and and enticing. It looks like one of those wonderful cakes from Costco with the buttercream frosting and it's so good. Think about that the next time that sin and temptation comes to you and it looks like a gift. It looks like a present with a nice bow on it. It has your name on it. It's for you. Think about that the next time that sin and temptation comes and it looks like a stranger smiling at you, inviting you to come with him to find joy and peace and all that your heart longs for. No, no, there's there's poison in that cake. There's a knife hidden behind his back. There's a bomb in that beautifully wrapped package with your name on it. This is the same deceiver who came to Eve saying, did God actually say, did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You will not surely die. You'll be fine. I'm, I'm for you, Eve. I'm for your joy. I'm for your contentment and your advancement. God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So it continues. Destruction, murder, chaos, death, misery, pain. That is the legacy of Satan. 
when these demons are unleashed and allowed just a measure of freedom on earth, they eagerly inflict all the pain and the misery that they can on those who are made in the image of God, on those who are not sealed and protected by God in Christ. Lastly, number three, we also see here, we see meaningful imagery. Meaningful imagery. Please note this on your outline. What John sees and hears, it should inform our thinking about the nature, the deception, and the destructive power of Satan and his demons. You know, in verses 7 to 10, and you notice this, John writes just the strangest description of these locust-like creatures. And I I think it is a description. I think it's more than that. I don't think it's less than that, but I do. I think it's more than that. I think this is more than just a bunch of scary details that are going to give you nightmares at night. No, God is, he is teaching us. He is warning us here about the nature, the deception, and the destructive power of Satan. What we read here, believe it or not, it has relevance for us Now, it is relevant for us here and now as we are called in Ephesians 6 to put on the armor of God. As we are called to take our stand here and now against the deception and the lies of of the evil one. So let's look at this. In verse 7, we see that the overall appearance of this army was like, quote, horses prepared for battle. Say, What does that mean? Well, it means this. It means they're strong, they're organized, they're prepared, and they're ready. They are eager to attack. Our enemy is not sleeping. We are called to be watchful. We are called to be alert. Verse 7 also says that on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, meaning this army will be victorious for a time. They will triumph. They will seem to rule For a time, this word translated as crown is that Greek word stephanos, referring to the victor's crown. And it looks like Satan is victorious. It looks like his demonic army is 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 succeeding. But as we will see, the success of Satan is very short-lived. The end of verse 7 also says that their faces were like human faces, meaning this. These are not just locusts. These are not just unreasoning animals. No, they have intelligence. They have understanding. Uh, I think Simon Kistemacher rightly explains it this way. He says, they are demonic creatures with the mental power of rational beings to inflict untold misery on those people who rebel against their Lord and Maker they purpose to delude the people who do not serve and worship him. They, they project demonic evil with a human face that is turned away from and is therefore without God. He's right. Next, verse 8 gives us this curious but important detail. It says of these locusts that their hair is like women's hair and their teeth are like lion's teeth. What does that mean? It means this. There is both beauty and cruelty here. There is both beauty and there is ferocious cruelty here. A woman's hair is a mark of beauty, even glory, and lion's teeth is an indication of savagery and danger. The point here is there is both. There is beauty to allure you. There is danger to kill you. 
As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11.14, even Satan disguises himself as what? As an angel of light. Satan and his forces love to appear attractive. They love to appear as beautiful. They may seem like a good idea, but there's lion's teeth waiting for you. There is death at the end of that road. Verse 9 tells us that they had breastplates, like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. Here we see the appearance of indestructibility. They look invincible. They look like they cannot be stopped. They sound intimidating with the rushing of horses and the noise. It is terrifying and it is meant to be so. And after you hear all that, you may be thinking, wow, is, is anyone safe from the power of this army? Is anyone safe from the torment of their sting? Is anyone protected from these forces of hell? Of course, you know the answer. The answer is yes. Yes, those who are sealed by God are safe from the torment of this army. Those who belong to God are not the target of this judgment. Those who love and follow Christ again will experience what Jesus described, what we looked at earlier in Luke ten nineteen, where Jesus said again, Remember the imagery. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, as great as that is, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Brothers and sisters, what should this text do for us primarily? This text should primarily, I think, lead us to gratitude, to joy, to thanksgiving for the life, for the security, for the protection that we have in Christ. You have that if you are in Christ. Now, we're not done. Next and lastly, we're going to look at trumpet number six. And we're going to make just a few comments on trumpet number six as this trumpet builds on the last one. Look again at verse 13. We read, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet. So here's what I think the voice is God speaking here from the altar. Release the four angels who are bound. Now stop there for just a second. That's a very interesting detail that, 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 that we see here. In the Bible, good angels, holy angels are never said to be bound. Never. This is most likely a reference to four bound demons. So this angel says, uh, or rather this voice says, the voice of God says to the angel with the sixth trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And then John says this, I heard their number. Okay, so just in case you're like, oh, John, you're making that up. John, you're, you are given to exaggeration. John, you are 
prone to make things up. John's like, I'm not making this up. I heard the number. This is the reality. This is an overwhelming, massive army that is seen here, that is, that is commissioned to essentially kill a third of mankind. And then, in verse 17, we read this description of this army. And it says, This is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. Stop there. So here we see a progression in judgment. We see a progression from pain to death. We see angels, again, I believe demons, prepared for this specific moment to lead another army who will kill a third of those left on the earth who are hardened and hate-filled towards God and his people. So please, please note this on your outline. We're going to just unpack a few things quickly. Firstly, number one on your outline, there is a high degree of detail in this passage, a high degree of detail. For example, we see four specific angels or demons bound at the Euphrates River. Now you hear that and you're like, what does that mean? I mean, why the Euphrates River? Why, why, not a, why not another river? Why, why this river? Well, remember this. The Euphrates River was known to be an important boundary, an important border between Israel and her enemies. In fact, the Euphrates River uh, is, it was and is about 1,800 miles long, and it forms a division between Israel. At least it did. It formed a division between Israel and two of her most significant enemies enemies, Assyria and Babylon. So the point is, there is danger here. There is death here. Beware of this army that comes from the east, that comes from this direction. It is a hostile army. It is a hostile enemy. Also, notice in verse 15 that these angels have been prepared for this specific moment. In fact, the text says that they have been prepared for this hour, this day, this month, this year to be released. God will use these demons leading this army and their hatred of mankind to accomplish his judgment. And John hears the number of this massive army and it works out to 200 million. And the point is, this army is an unstoppable flood. That brings death to a third of mankind. And this army is described as troops mounted on horses. The riders and the horses, they are said to be clothed in. They are said to be breathing out fire, sulfur, smoke. The horses are gruesome. They have heads like devouring lions. They have tails like serpents. And they bring death. They bring death, which leads us to our next point. Please note this on your outline. In the fifth trumpet, we saw the patience of God in that we saw only pain and misery brought to mankind. But in this sixth trumpet judgment, God uses this army to bring death, 
to bring death to a third of those living on the earth. Now, how could God do this? How could God do this? Here, brothers and sisters, we need to remember, God is exercising his right as the sovereign, just judge of all. God is showing in a very clear and powerful way that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. God is demonstrating that he rules over life and death. God can sustain and prolong life for as long as he chooses. And he can allow death and bring death according to his wisdom and his timing. These verses should remind us that it is God. It is always God who is worthy of our reverence, worthy of our fear, worthy of our worship. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, he said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Listen, far worse than physical death is separation from God is spiritual death, is is to be separated from the goodness and the mercy and the kindness of God. This verse also, rather, rather, these verses also remind us of what the writer of Hebrews says. In Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is patient. God is long-suffering. And He is just. Judgment will come. And it is true that this is a shocking and an overwhelming judgment that we see poured out upon the earth here. And yet, at the very end of this chapter, in the last two verses, I think we come to the really scary part of this chapter. I think in the last two verses of Revelation 9, we come to the really dark to the really frightening, to the really dreadful thing that is presented here, and it is the human heart. It is the deadness and the blindness and the callousness of the human heart. That is terrifying. Look at verse 20. Here's what we read. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. That is terrifying. Note it on your outline. The really scary thing that this chapter reveals is the human heart. The dark, idol-loving, stubborn, self-deceived human heart. That is scary. The heart that continues to worship the very demons that torment them. That is twisted. The heart that loves the very sin that calls out for the judgment and for the wrath of God. That is so twisted. The heart that is so committed to murder, 
so committed to sorcery, so committed to sexual sin, so committed to stealing and to loving possessions and to making idols out of money and and material things, so committed to these things that it will not repent. It refuses to find life and safety in Jesus. That is dark. That is twisted. And brothers and sisters, when you look at the entertainment that floods our culture, what do you see? What do you see in the trailers for all the movies that are coming out and for the books that you should buy and read? It is committed to murder, to sorcery, to witchcraft, to sexual immorality of all kinds, and to idolatry of possessions. This is exactly what Jesus talked about in John 3, where he said this, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's the problem. That's the problem of the human heart. We love our darkness. We love our sin. We want our eyes to stay tightly closed that we won't consider the goodness and the glory of Christ because I won't give up my idols of stone and sex and money. I won't let it go. We remain committed to our sin even if it kills us. That's the picture that we see in Revelation 9. So what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we think in response to all of this today? Let me give you three things. Number one, we humbly recognize we can't fix the human heart. You can't. You can't fix the human heart. I can't fix the human heart that loves sin. So what do we do? We appeal to the one who can. We appeal to the one who can change hearts. We appeal to the one who can open blinded eyes and can restore sanity to sin-loving minds. We explain again and again and again the glory and the beauty and the truthfulness of Christ. We remember that in Romans 2.4 it says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So we continue to hold out and we continue to model and we show the kindness of God so that God will do his work. He will do his work to change lives and to open hearts and to open blinded eyes. So that's that's what we do. First of all, we confess that we are not the solution, but we know the one who is the solution and we appeal to Christ. And so number two, we don't give up and we continue to act and we continue to speak boldly. Yes, graciously and kindly, but boldly as ambassadors for Christ. We need to cling on to what Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so we persist in that and we pray. We pray. We pray because the power is not in us. We pray because it is God who opens eyes. We pray because God has promised to work through you, his people. God has promised to draw others to himself through the 
preaching and through the testimony of his people, we don't forget what we read earlier in Revelation chapter 5. We don't forget the song that was sung in heaven, the song that gives us hope to persevere today, to speak today, to pray today, to hand out gospel tracts today. We remember the song of Revelation 5.9, which says, Worthy are you, speaking to Christ, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. This is the end result. This is what we look forward to. This is what this is what empowers our evangelism and gives hope to our witness and to our living for Christ. He died to accomplish this. He died to save us and to bring us and to bring others to himself. And so, as we close, I hope you haven't gotten lost. I hope you are still on track with the big picture of Revelation 9. Satan is not your friend. He is unmasked. He desires only death, deception, and destruction. But Jesus looms large in this chapter. Jesus is the Savior, the door, the good shepherd, the one who gives life-changing grace, abundant joy, and eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a chapter like this that is so alarming and is even so shocking to us in many ways. God, thank you for pulling back the veil to show us who and what our enemy is like. God, help us, even as we see that, to not grow weary or to be fearful, but to see the goodness and power of Christ in this. God, your grace is sufficient. Your spirit is glorious and life-changing and powerful. God, we celebrate the sufficient victory of Jesus this day. God, help us to leave, to go forth from this place so eager to live and to share the kindness and the goodness of Christ. Lord, do this work in us that you may be glorified, that our joy may be increased. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.